Let's do this, everybody. Welcome back to the VPZD show episode. I don't know. What are we at? 20 now, VP? Maybe like 18, 19, something like that. Something yeah. like that. We're doing something different today. We're doing it. We're recording it live via Zoom, and we actually have video. <laughs> and I've got my hand on a button that clicks between VP and ZD. <laughs> and that way, I don't have to edit it in post. It's just already done. Could it suck? Absolutely. Is it a disastrously bad idea? 100%. Is VP sexy as hell on camera? Yes, he is. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm, I'm impressed you can do this. This is, this is going to put your skills to the test. Having a conversation and pushing the button every time. The, you know what? Women have been doing this for millennia, this idea of multitasking. Like the baby's over here, the breast is here, they're breastfeeding, and they're doing this and they're doing that. Whereas guys, it's like if they have more than one task, everything falls, falls to hell, right? I've never been able to do more than one thing in my life. Yeah, never. <laughs> never have, never will. I, don't, I, can't, I can't control the button. I will, it's like uh, walking and chewing gum, walking and chewing gum. <laughs> I'll double down on that and say I'm not even sure I can do one thing right. Um, so t today we're going to talk about the, the gun stuff that's going on, and the, especially in healthcare. I want to talk about this um, attack on this clinic in Tulsa. Uh, we don't have the answers to this, but it'll be an interesting conversation. I'd love to pick your brain on it. Mm -hmm. We're gonna talk a little bit about great resignation and how it's affecting all of us now, uh, the fallout of our COVID pandemic response. We'll probably talk about uh, Ashish Jha and some school stuff that he said, uh, whether yeah. people need an annual COVID shot. We'll talk yeah. about uh, monkeypox, because why not? Because we need the, we just want to, we want the clickbait, right, VP? <laughs> That's what it's for. That's, That's what, what it's, it's for. for. It's yeah. like you say monkeypox, suddenly your views triple. Um, and then we'll, we'll uh, round it out with a little Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp. <laughs> disaster so my expertise that's my that's you know my what? core expertise i want you to know that i gotta say this her depth trial i've heard many people say vp should stay in his lane about covid z dog md should not talk about guns stay in your lane i'm like you know what our lane is without a doubt Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Am I right? Hey, listen, our our lane is trials. So ischemia, sprint, Heard Depp, Heard Depp. That's the three big trials. That's our lane. We're in trials. <laughs> the sprint trial and the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, <laughs> both with confusing yeah. outcomes, large sample yeah. sizes, and uh, really un- And some, shit, some shitty design. Exactly, yes. <laughs> exactly. And totally unclear endpoints. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. all right, all right. All let's, right. let's start. Let's do this. Listen, this, okay. Every every time we turn on the news, it seems like there's some kind of mass shooting going on. And uh, whether that's perceptual or real, I think it actually is real. There is an increase in, in this. And some of it, I think, is purely pandemic pent up rage. We've isolated people. We've taken away mental health services. You can get a gun basically by just showing up and asking for one uh, in many states. And so that's a toxic stew of disgruntled, isolated male, usually, and easy access to weapon that can kill a lot of people at once. And then all the rage and pent up angst. And then you see this. <clears throat> now, again, uh, <laughs> this is such a charged topic, but I'll say it, it hits home. People are like, stay in your lane. It's like, well, okay, first of all, this kind of is our lane because we're doctors. But second of all, it becomes our lane when a disgruntled patient shows up to an orthopedic surgeon's office, shoots and kills two doctors and a receptionist and a patient and wounds a bunch of other people in a place of medical care, which just happened in Tulsa. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts so far, VP? A terrible tragedy. Um, and uh, I mean, one more thing I'd add is, that, you know, I've actually published some papers on uh, gun violence, guns, declining lethality, things like this. One of the points that we made in the paper we published was that... Um, 
since we're better at resuscitation, since we're better at taking care of people who are the victim of gunshot wounds, uh, it actually is masking some of the increased uh, homicides that would have occurred otherwise. And so that was a point we made in a publication about maybe five, six, seven years ago. Oh. So, yeah. I mean, this is the toughest question. This is the, the toughest question, which is obviously nobody wants this to happen. Everybody, I think, wants this avoided and averted. How are you going to get there? And how are you going to get there from where we are right now, which is something that I feel like people don't often acknowledge enough, where the United States is right now, both in terms of the raw number of firearms that are already out there, as well as the culture. So you have the political reality, you have the reality on the streets, and then you have to think about policy solutions. And those policy solutions have to thread the needle between the law, politics, culture, etc., and it is really not so easy, um, but uh, I'm happy to get into it with you. Yeah, no, and, and th- this is why I think it's important to discuss with you, because again, you've written about this, and I I don't, you know, this is exactly the situation where all that nuance, where you know, what, what I keep rebranding as alt-middle thinking, this idea that, okay, yeah, there are these scientific principles of, you know what, if you didn't have guns, there wouldn't be bullet holes in people. Uh, If you didn't have access to guns, you shape a sort of path that people are walking on. It just makes it harder to do a mass killing. You you know, you can go in England and have a stabbing, but it's it's not gonna kill, you know, know, 20 kids. Right, and and so there's those simple shapings of the environment, uh, sort of systems engineering that happen with guns. But then you have the cultural reality of American culture, which is a very liberty-minded culture. You have these constitutional pieces on right to bear arms for all the controversy around what the founding fathers actually meant and so on. The truth is it's there codified in the constitution and and Americans, you know, there's 3 million Americans or something at last count that for whom this is an existential issue. Like they they think guns are the most important thing. So you have a very, you have a gun owning population that actually has a, a liberty versus oppression moral palette that says, you know, the government if I don't have guns, the government can do anything they want to me. Of course, they don't realize that they, the government can do anything they want anyways, because the government has an army and nuclear weapons and all the other stuff they have. But that feeling of, you know, I need to arm myself and so on is is kind of ingrained in this country as well as the sort of hunting culture and so on. But what we have now is this rampant ability for, you know, an 18 year old on his 18th birthday in Texas to go get an AR-15 and and uh, we have no mental health services for that kid. We have a kid who comes from this karmic background of complete abuse and destruction. Mom is a purportedly a, a drug addict and all kinds of stuff going on. All the warning signs were there, ignored or, or purposely or unintentionally ignored. And, and now he has access to a weapon that can murder tons of people at once. So I'm, I, you know, what's, what's your thinking? Oh boy! Yeah, I know, right? Uh, where where to get started? I mean, I guess let's let's maybe put some more facts on the table that we'll all you know we can agree on before we can kind of get into the issues. One is that um, whether we like it or not, uh, estimates range between four hundred to six hundred million firearms are already out there in circulation in the United States. So I think that's a reality that has to be considered deeply in any policy solution, which is that what do you what can you even do? when you have 600 million guns out there. I mean, I'm not, you know, there are things you can do, of course, and I'm going to support anything that you can do that works. Um, But I think you have to acknowledge there's 600 million guns, maybe 400, 600 million guns in circulation, and that poses a big challenge. I think the next thing is the point you're making, which is that there is a fraction of people in the country, one in 100 people, that this is a very important issue to. And they also, politically, the reality is that even the sides that are supporting of sort of... um, 
you know, what they call common sense gun reforms, um, those are from a grand scheme of things, you know, rather modest, not selling, uh, you know, certain types of weapons, some types of background checks. Um, one of the points you made about red flags, I think people that people forget about is you always see an incident and then you can ask yourself, was there a red flag? Absolutely. In this case, many red flags. Um, but the question is, if you took everybody who had a reg red flag event and actually did something about it, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about each year, one million people have a red flag event and we have to track them, follow them, investigate them, see what they're up to? Are we talking about two million people? Are we talking about five million people, 10 million people? How many people are hitting those red flags? Because it's like any other policy problem. You don't know who is going to actually do it. You can only know that the flag is there. What sort of resources would it take? What sort of evidence would it take to act upon those red flags? You know, you talk about mental health, people always talk about mental health, but the, the part that I'm still unsure about, what they mean is, you know, it's easy to say mental health contributes. If you were to identify people suffering from mental health pro problems along this spectrum that predispose one to violence, what are you going to do to them to lower their risk of violence? What evidence suggests that that will actually lower the risk of violence? You know, these are very complex questions, um, and, I, and, I, and I think the evidence is quite weak. I mean, one of the reasons the evidence is weak is this has been a place where no one could study it for many years, many decades. Um, those are some of my preliminary thoughts. I, and I, you know, I think, you know, I'm not a constitutional expert. Uh, you know, I think many people read this. I mean, obviously, and I'm not, I'm not even, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm so disillusioned with the law, to be honest with you. I, I really sometimes wonder if, do they really have any principles in law? Or is it just like people read it and they just decide whatever the hell they want it to mean on any issue in the law, not just guns, but, you know, the Second Amendment calls for the right to bear arms among a well-regulated militia that's been extended by the court over the last 25 years to a personal right to bear arms. Uh, I mean, that's been upheld for many, you know, for, for a long time, and it's even extended into uh, the Heller decision and handguns, um, you know. But some of the weapons that we have now were probably, uh, they certainly didn't exist when they signed that document, and they may have even been unthinkable to the people who wrote the document, uh, written at a time where you have like a single loading musket. Um, did they imagine these weapons? Uh, is this what they intended? But then also, I don't know, uh, it, it, the way I understand the law is people always say that one school of thought is, you need to interpret this the way they intended. But that is, you know, there's no, who says that that's their way to interpret? You could interpret it any way you want to interpret it, and other people interpret it differently. Um, it's just that that has become a dominant legal philosophy, this sort of originalism, uh, which itself I think is arbitrary. And sometimes I look at judges and I think they just interpret it, you know, they have decided what they want the policy to be, and they interpret it any way you get there. And I honestly, scientists are often the same way. They've decided what they want the policy to be, and then they conduct science that reaches that conclusion. Um, so it's, you know, that that to me doesn't feel like it's, it's anything more than that. Um, I don't know. Those are scattered thoughts, but uh, and then I'm happy to get into any of this. So, more. so okay, okay, yeah. I think this is a great starting point for this discussion because it it is so uh, multi layered. One of the things you pointed out was the legal aspect of it, and I think increasingly listening to you talk about it, I feel like uh, the legal apparatus is an expression of the culture. So, Correct. if if there is a uh, cultural bias towards liberty and gun ownership, and in America that's clear, then that will manifest in in laws. Now then. Then you add in the, the, there's always financial stuff, just like in medicine, you pointed out the parallels between science and law and motivated reasoning and so on and how we how we do things. I think uh, you can look at the pharmaceutical influence, pharmaceutical industry influence in medical practice and say, you know, how are they different than the NRA? 
in terms of their monetary influence, their lobbying influence, their influence on the culture, their influence on the expectations of the consumer. Uh, and this idea that, you know, I think NRA has set a, a bar that says any compromise on gun legislation is a slippery slope to uh, an absolute ban on guns, which is unthinkable in that sphere. And, uh, and so it becomes this very uh, <laughs> complex web to unravel. And, under, and also, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. So for example, uh, uh, in, in medicine in particular, because we're biased and we see the a lot of times the outcomes of, of gun-related violence, we cannot put ourselves in the shoes of someone who would want to own a gun, who is uh, actually really into guns and so on. And, and actually this was me prior to me actually going to a shooting range with a friend a few years back and firing a handgun and realizing, oh my gosh, like this is... First of all, it's it's, it's kind of like a, an amazing sport. Second of all, there's a there's a real quality to firing a a, a weapon that ha it almost is an addictive quality, and there's a skill component to it. There's all this other stuff, and then there is this feeling like, well, if I if if I'm in a rural part of the country like where I grew up, and you call nine one one, and the cops don't show up for you know, uh, 20 minutes because it's just so far away or they're slow or whatever. How do you defend yourself when other people are potentially are armed and, and having a weapon in that case and really knowing how to use it, training, going to the range, et cetera, becomes a very compelling conscious and unconscious kind of motivation. So I have a lot of deep sympathy to gun owners and their concerns around, you know, what, what might be an erosion of what their perceived rights are in gun ownership. So then how does that relate to say something like happened in Australia where the policy was <laughs> changed almost overnight and there was a gun buyback and so on. So I'll toss it back to you. You know, I, okay, great point. But you know, it, Australia, people often point to that. I think we have to accept the fact that we are not Australia. I mean, look at the level of obedience Australians had in response to lockdown measures. That obedience does not exist in this country. Ah, that's a great I mean, point. Is, yeah. You know, they're an obedient people. No offense, Australians, but you're more obedient than Americans. Americans aren't as obedient as you. We wouldn't do that. I don't think that that I mean, you know, it, it, it worked there. In it terms, does, I don't it, know if that'll work here. And yeah. in terms of obedience, we may be talking about either trust or belief in government as an entity that you should respect and and listen to. Yes, I mean, obe yeah, you're right. Uh, obedience may sound like a pejorative way to put it, but the optimistic way to put it is they have a shared sense of collective responsibility and that collectivism is strong, perhaps. But, you know, it is what it is. At the end of the day, they are probably far more likely to, you know, allow their guns to be bought back than I think many people in this country. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know the distribution of the 400 to 600 million guns in circulation, but I suspect it's not, you know, two per person. It's got a, it's got a right-tailed distribution. There's a few people at the end of the distribution distribution with a lot of them. And I suspect the people with a lot of them are the ones least likely to let those return and be bought back. And so I think that that is almost untenable in this country. Yeah. Um, I think one of the challenges that they face, the politicians face, is that politicians have positioned themselves on two sides of the issue. One side of the issue is the side you've alluded to, which is that we will do absolutely nothing to curb the sale, manufacture, or use of firearms. And I think that is the NRA position. And a lot of people ally themselves with that position. The other side is talking about, I think, modest or incremental steps. But the challenge I think they face, the deep challenge is, they may end up in a situation where they get a lot of what they want, but the problem may still rage unchecked or may even accelerate. 
And if they end up in that situation where they've gotten some things and the problem actually gets worse um, or, or the visibility of the problem gets worse, um, they're going to be in a bad situation because the other side is going to say, look, we have get, you got all the things you wanted and look what you've gotten for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the challenge with measures that are very much on the margin or very sort of modest, um, uh, you know, just from a policy standpoint. Um, and then your last point about that, that firearm in the home and defending, I mean – there, there are, there's a lot of data on this question, which is like, are you actually safer by having one in your house? And it accepts the reality. I mean, you, you talked about the person who's training and knows how to use it and all this stuff and keeps it in a safe or whatever, et cetera. But the reality is that that might not be true for everybody who owns it. And I think the evidence, which is, I think, very limited, I mean, in terms of methodologically limited, um, it, it does suggest that you may be even worse off by having it in your house, like that somebody in your house, like a child, will get a hold of it and much more likely to shoot themselves accidentally than you are to stop the burglar, et cetera. You know, um, but I'm, but, but, but again, you know, we're, we're, this, is not, this is not very high-level evidence. These are confounded by the types of people who are buying this and the types of environments they're in, et cetera. Um, I have to say that I think it's, you know, this is my last thought on this, and I'll turn it back to you. It's this, there are some issues in biomedicine and public health that become issues of virtue. And by virtue issues, I mean that different people in different tribes and different political parties believe there is a right answer. And I do think there are people on the far left who believe that if we lived in a society free of all guns, that's a much more virtuous place to be than the society we're living in now. And I think there are people on the right who believe if we live in a society that is free of guns, that is a very dangerous place where one day they could institute indefinite lockdowns or something like that, and I'll have no way to deter that. And I think maybe we even have to acknowledge that some places that didn't institute prolonged lockdowns did so because they were fearful of an armed populace. I mean, who knows? Why, you know, that's part of the culture. Why didn't they do it in some states? They knew they couldn't even get do it. I mean, so is it a deterrent effect against government? I don't know the answer to the question. I mean, it's an existent, it's a question that cannot be answered by data. Um, there are these, these two extremes and they have the strong view and both of that view is wedded to virtue. I mean, th- it's a different sense of virtue. One is a virtue where we all live in, you know, peace without these weapons. And the other is a virtue of the virtue of sort of self-protection. And when you have such a setting I think that the science that's generated in that setting is often very, very difficult to do and to interpret and to be clear about, very difficult to draw causality. Um, And uh, I worry that people are so wedded to their policy conclusion that they let themselves be misled by science. I mean, and and the same is true for, uh, you know, an example that will be much less triggering to people, no pun intended, is I think cloth masking kids. Some people believe it and some people don't believe it. And, you know, do I believe any of these retrospective observational studies that prove it works or doesn't? Not really, because I know that they don't want it and they're not going to, the study's going to not find it. You know what I mean? So when you do these kinds of evidence generation in a space that is so polarized and so uh, synonymous with virtue, what you're left with is often very low credibility evidence that doesn't deal with some of these thorny issues. Um, I think the one thing that, you know, that maybe more people could agree upon is the need to actually do em- empirical studies of this phenomenon and what might ameliorate the problem free of bias and as, as much as that's possible. Oh, okay, okay, man, everything, okay. All the things you just said are so crucial to understanding this problem because this idea of motivated reasoning, I think, 
imagine this situation, you're the NRA, right? And you're tasked with protecting gun rights in the United States and also protecting probably the profits of people who help fund you like the gun uh, manufacturers and so on. And you're t being told, listen, we need to study the gun issue. Uh, scientists and biomedical people need to study this. Epidemiologists need to study this and try to figure out what is act what are actually solutions that work? What kind of gun restrictions help? What don't help with this and that? But in the NRA's mind, they already know the power of motivated reasoning. They know that many right. people in the biomedical community skew more liberal. They're gonna be in that virtuous category, in the virtue category of no guns is better as opposed to an armed populace is better. And they're going to skew their study or their bias or their conclusions in a way that is not ever gonna be objective. And so this idea of being able to study it objectively to them is a non-starter. So they just say, don't study at all. You can't use CDC money. You can't use public, you know, and that kind of thing. And I, I suspect, just with my limited understanding of it, that maybe that's a component of it. So in this situation where we have a country that's now 200 and some odd years into the grand experiment of, of, of liberty uh, and, a, and a second amendment uh, a gun thing and the gun culture, and like you said, the, 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 the tail end of the group that are, this is a, a existential issue for them. We're now in a situation where there's no magic answer. It's difficult to study. Uh, we have outcomes that nobody's happy with currently. Like, I don't think gun rights people are happy with mass shootings. I don't think uh, uh, gun uh, uh, anti-gun people are, are happy with the school shootings or any shootings. And so we're in a very tough situation. So I, I don't know the best way forward, but I think that kind of disentangling some of the virtue and having some introspection to be able to say, okay, what's my moral palette say? And then what is actually a way we could study this objectively it might be a start. It's well put. And I guess I have to say that I think this is a perennial debate, which is how much can you be the researcher and how much can you be the advocate? And people always say, I can be both. But the truth is, the more you are one, the harder it is for people to take you credible as the other. And there is that tension. And I know people want to wish that tension weren't there. And the net result is, I think exactly as you say, that that side that favors uh, gun rights, they do view the entire academy as captured by the opposite philosophical point of view, and that they would be unwilling to trust any of those results. And as a net result, I think they've lobbied very hard and they've been very successful. I mean, their success is uh, really uh, remarkable um, that they have, I mean, it, on many of these issues, it appears that, you know, when you poll the majority of Americans, they want X and yet that's not what happens because the, the vocal minority has uh, overpowered the majority on a lot of these issues. Um, and, uh, and, and they view it that any research is only going to be unfavorable to us because uh, maybe they don't see it as I would say it, that they believe that they don't understand about analytical flexibility and things like this. Um, but they, I think they have an intuitive sense of what might generate. What I would suggest is one way to move forward is to create some system where everybody who is a scientist, those of us who still remain willing to look at data and come to different <laughs> conclusions, that we create a system where there are some checks and balances where we could actually study a topic without, uh, you know, knowing what the answer will be preordained. I think it has to be. I mean, otherwise, you know, we can move to one part of this, which is the mental health part. Um, I don't think anyone knows. You know, let's let's just say let's just say I give you uh, I don't know five hundred billion dollars, and then I said, okay, the only thing you can spend your money on is mental health, and I want you to do things for mental health that will curb gun violence like this. Um, how are you going to deploy that money? I think the truth is that you you ha don't have much idea what you would do to deploy that money. Um, 
you you might uh, have some vague senses that you'd want to target adolescent boys between the ages of, you know, 15 and uh, 30 or something, you know, those sort of the, the most, you know, the high risk age group for committing the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, how will you identify them? And and I think the moment you start to try to like, how will you identify the group of people you want to, you know, put resources behind? Um, the first challenge you'll find is that the denominator will be, I think, vast. I suspect it'll be vast. It'll be millions and millions. The vast majority of those millions are never going to pick up a gun and kill somebody, right? That's just the nature of it. But within that pile of millions and millions, there are the, the high-risk you know, the, the, the high threats. Um, what are you going to do to them to improve their mental health? What, you know, uh, are, you know I, and I think people are very quick to assume that, oh, if I just give somebody some counseling or some Prozac, or you know, it's going to make it all bad. You know, but the, this is really uh, a naive Let, view of, I think, psychiatry, which is that it's not always so easy to improve upon some of these things. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. A couple things I just want to interject yeah. because, you know— um, I had uh, psychologist Rachel Zoffness on the show and she was talking about school shootings and how to screen and so on and the warning signs and so on. And, and like you say, I think that the the difficulty with the approach, because it's a common sense approach, but the outcomes are may not be common sense. Millions of people may fall into that screen. You're now yeah, making millions. educators and law enforcement even more overwhelmed. And the question is, what do you what do you do to intervene? And, and the, your point about this is not simply a receptor, uh, a serotonin deficiency or something like that. Yes. This is the karmic intergenerational traumatic result of, <laughs> and when I say karma, I'm not trying to be metaphysical. I'm saying cause no. and effect. A person grows up in a broken household where there's abuse, where there's maybe a single parent, there's all this other stuff going on. They're then in a in a school situation like this kid in uh, Texas who, you know, he's bullied for his stuttering, he's bullied for his uh, speech impediment, so on. Who knows whether that was an epiphenomenon of him being already a weird kid versus weird meaning not fitting the social norms, meaning maybe there was some evidence of antisocial behavior already. I mean, who knows, right? You can't tell. It's so incredibly complex. It's interwoven into the fabric of reality in a way that you can't disentangle it in the form of a, a pill or a simple counseling intervention. And how do you know? So how do you stop it? So well, you can engineer systems so that it's harder for a kid like that to do a lot of harm. So that may be then the, talking about the gun issue. You from the other side of the gun angle, where people are like, no, we want our guns. Okay, so we want to engineer schools so that it's harder for a kid to show up in a school and shoot things. Okay, I mean again. Who knows what the answer is? You'd have to actually study it in a dispassionate, uh, non-motivated way, which again, yeah. difficult to do, right? I mean, and back to that kid. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to the gun part, but the the mental health part. Just one more thought on it. Like, let's say you could inter. Let's just say we, you know, you, you could probably build more consensus on the mental health side. So you identify all these vulnerable kids. By the way, the number of kids that fit that bill who've been bullied, who are single parent homes, who are from lower socioeconomic status. We're talking millions of It's like of millions of millions. kids, yeah. Millions, millions. So that's the first challenge you face. Then you do something to them. You counsel them, you treat them, you meet their needs, something like that. Um, one worry is that the more you talk about shooting and violence and things like that, you, you, I, there's a real worry, I think, you could even accelerate a problem. I mean, in the history of biomedicine, there, the people have done interventions. For instance, they, this is a separate incident, but they took teenage girls in Australia many years ago. They gave them a baby doll that would simulate what it's like to be a teen parent, and the baby doll will cry and make wake you up at night, and it's a torture to have this baby doll around. And what it did was it led to an increase in teen pregnancy. Uh, you know, it's thought to be oh, right, dissuade people. Oh, 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 so, so this is 
like a saliency effect. So people will, and, 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 and related to this is like, say, advertising. You know that the advertisements are bullshit. You know that pharma buying you lunch or whatever is a total play to try to get you to do something. You know that on a conscious level, on an unconscious level, it normalizes something. It, it biases yeah. you in a way that's subtle. And it's the same thing with, like you said, with the doll that like trying to scare you straight. It actually somehow subtly normalizes that having a kid at that age is okay or normal or whatever. And and these are the subtleties that actually we don't, you know, you think common sense would say otherwise, but it, it's never as simple as that, especially with human beings. And it's the same, like if you think about screening for prostate cancer, the show we did with Rita Redberg, all this kind of screening stuff, what's the downside? Well, there's actually harm that can happen from that that mm -hmm. isn't obvious. And I think it's right. the same with what you're saying. All right. Yes. And now the harder part is the guns part, because, you know, what are the kind of rules, restrictions, regulations, buying ages, background checks, weapons you can sell, weapons you can't sell? Many people have many thoughts on these things. And um, and I guess, you know, I mean, I have an intuition, too, but, you know, my intuition is not the same as data. And so I'll keep my intuition myself. I just talk about, you know, um, one of the things people always say, which I think is just sort of a naive way of thinking, is they say, if we had this rule in place, this wouldn't have happened. Okay, you know, if he couldn't get this gun, this wouldn't have happened. But the challenge I see with that kind of thinking is the counterfactual is, well, maybe they, instead of not doing it at all, they would have found a different avenue of getting a weapon. So they may not have used this weapon, they'd use that weapon, they may not have killed X, they'll kill X minus five, you know, maybe there's some things there. Um, but that's also, this is sort of an anecdote. I mean, this is really sort of a very low level of evidence. This is sort of anecdotal counterfactual thinking, which is really sort of the same as an imagination. I mean, you really need sort of broad scale population level evidence. Um, one of the challenges in this debate is, I mean, I have to be honest, this, this shooting broke me. I mean, I called you and I told you about it. I mean, I was yeah, it was, it was devastated. It was truly one of the most affecting things I've seen in the news in recent memory. I mean, it was horrible. Yeah, broke my spirit, and yeah. I, I remember thinking how broken I felt. And then the more I learned about the inadequacy of the response and oh, sitting out just there, angry you know, and angry, and I wrote a whole thing on duty, which I think some people realize what I was really talking about. Ah. Uh, and I think duty, and 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 part of you always feels like this is sort of a a culture in decline, a culture that's just killing itself, and uh, you know, unable to use science to advance. The pandemic response was evidence of a culture in decline. Um, our wealth inequality is evidence of culture in decline. School shootings are a culture in decline. Uh, sort of a, this is the beginning of the end of this civilization. It feels like to some people, sort of an existential crisis. You know, I, I, um, think, I think people forget that apocalypse looks different ways. Like apocalypse may not be the meltdown in nuclear war that we, that we always imagined in growing up in the Cold War. Apocalypse may simply be that uh, San Francisco starts to look more like Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. With each passing generation, you know, and I and yeah. that's a it's an insidious slow decline. Yeah, that's really well put. That's very well put. And uh, you know, we don't know what society looks like in decline in the mod in modernity. We know what it looks like in antiquity. What does it look like in modernity? Um, but just to finish the thought on the guns uh, and the gun legislation is, I think. It's very difficult. I mean, you know, I know people wish that. I mean, I know people say with confidence they know what would happen if we were to implement this policy or that policy. If only we could get 60 senators or 50 senators or break the filibuster, we could make a difference. I think it's very difficult to know what you will get. Um, the society may be declining faster than these sort of efforts can help. The efforts that you need to do might need to be much bigger and bolder than what is currently on the table. Um, you might need to address this in a different space. In I mean, not just in, 
You might need to also address this in other places, such as fundamental challenges with wealth inequality, income inequality, which I think are huge drivers of dissatisfaction. And, you know, uh, giving people purpose in life and giving people something for everybody to strive for, um, uh, you know, things like mandatory service or, or encouraged national service or things like, you know, ways to sort of diffuse this, this time bomb. Um, anyways, I guess I'm, I'm rambling, but my point is that I just don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. And I would be hesitant to say with certainty what specific policy measures will accomplish. I think the people who speak very definitively in this space are overplaying their hand. I think the last thing you want to do is overplay your hand just like I thought with COVID-19, when you make policy, you need to be very, very clear that it might not do what you think it does. And you need to have some systems in place to detect that. And if you don't, you will forfeit the credibility of the population. Um, and I think we saw that many, many times with COVID-19. Um, this is a very tough space. And I think, um, yeah, so you, those are my thoughts. You, I mean, you, yeah. you know, you know, you were saying you were rambling at one point. No, it, it's not rambling. Mm -hmm. What it is, is you're, you're, you're shooting bullets around. Don't use that analogy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Don't use Shit. That. Uh, the... <laughs> throwing darts. You're throwing darts. You're throwing darts. You're, throwing no. darts. you're, uh, you're <laughs> bouncing electrons off the target that you want to visualize. It's kind of like an mm -hmm. indirect way of saying, what's the fundamental problem? And, I, and, and I'm going to, again, this is in intuition and a little bit of experience. So there's no data here. But I think that if we actually focused learning, teaching, growing humans on multiple axes. So psychologically growing them, uh, socially growing them, technologically growing them, and spiritually, meaning they wake up, they, they, they're they more and more in touch with the present moment. They're more and more in touch with what they actually are and what, what they aren't, which is a, a bundle of thoughts and emotions and body and all this. When that happens, society as an epiphenomenon of the individual transforms. And I think part of the reason, and I'm, I'm very much a believer in what you said with all these policy masturbations and things that we talk about, if we just did this, if we just did that, if we just did this, it's almost like in medicine where we go, if we just gave a statin, if we just did yeah, the bypass no, surgery, if we just did this, no. it would solve the problem. Whereas the root yeah. rot has not been addressed, which is the this narcissistic, egoic, societal conditioning that we must acquire goods and we must be consumers, we must do all this stuff, and that we're somehow separate from everything that is. I think ultimately that's the that's the core delusion that is driving the the everything, all the stuff we see. And I also love that you compare this to our COVID nineteen response. It's the same thing. You have a society in decline, and then you have this apparatus that is trying to steer policy, but in reality, you're dealing with a society in decline. And I think that's why you see differences in countries. It's not so much the policies cause the differences, it's the policies are epiphenomenons of the culture and, and the general societal integrity to begin with. I think that's an astute point. And I guess by comparison, the only point of comparison I mean is that nobody wanted anyone to die of COVID-19 and nobody wants anyone uh, to die, I think, of gun violence. I think both. I think that's something that every person will agree uh, they don't want innocent people to die from these problems. But the question, of course, always is, given where you are now, what can you do to ameliorate it going forward? And the answer is always, for very complex social dynamic problems, is you need careful, dispassionate science that doesn't know what it's going to find. Because it could be that the, like, you know, the best thing you think of is the thing that doesn't work, and the thing you think is least promising might actually have the biggest return. I think that's one. And it's very hard to do that in this space. Very, and I can only think of a couple of spaces even harder to do it than this one, but this is one of the hardest. Um, I think 
you need to have less certainty. And I guess, you know, to me, I do think I do find it off putting when people tell me things that they are like so confident will do the trick, especially lay people who haven't really spent a lot of time delving into it because I don't know. You know, it's funny. In in many ways in life, we don't have arrogance. For instance, Z, if I sent you to the garage and I said, make me a MacBook Pro. You, oh, you, how, you, how, you'd get a top of the line product, Vinay. Come on. <laughs> I'd get a I'd get some cardboard with some stickies on it. <laughs> That's but my racist. Point is that, I don't know why, but I'm going to accuse you of racism there. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you can help me set up my internet, but no. <laughs> what are you no, saying? Are you yeah. saying because I'm yeah. Indian, I, I, gotta, I do the IT? Come on. <laughs> but I guess it's interesting that when it comes to like building a laptop, you and I would be the, everyone would be the first to admit, oh man, I don't know how to build a laptop. That's, that's hard. Like it's hard to build a laptop, but it doesn't, but when people want to solve like very complex societal problems, anybody, they act like they know the answer. I was like, come on, dude. I was like, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, it's it's actually more complex than a laptop probably to solve this problem. Easily, and I think that's where you get into this Dunning-Kruger idea. You know a little bit about something, but you're passionate about it. Therefore, you overestimate your knowledge. There's this concept called the explanatory gap, I believe. And it was looked at when you try to ask somebody, okay, so tell me how a zipper works exactly. Or can you explain in detail exactly how a toilet works. And they'll and they'll come up confidently and say, oh, sure, I can do that. And then as they start mm-hmm. to write, they go, wait, I, wait, where, what, how does a zipper work exactly? Like, what, how do the, <laughs> and, the, and the toilet, what, what does that work? So this idea that we overestimate our knowledge and there's this explanatory gap, in these things, I think there's a sense of control because we're outraged morally. Then we go, well, you know what? I know the answer. And by knowing the answer, there's a sense of certainty and control. And that's why, like you said, when people project that certainty, you should immediately recoil in distrust. <laughs> because, and, and yeah. you know what's interesting? Then they'll say, well, but you and Vinay are are so certain that our pandemic response was a shit show and so on and that we should, no, 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 no. What we're saying is here are all the reasons that this has been an inadequate understanding. We're agnostic to what the actual answer is, but we, we, we are telling you that the way we've looked about the, the epistemic disaster of how to even acquire the knowledge is what we're pointing out. Yeah. And I, and just to push on that a little bit, I think the pandemic response is even to some degree an easier topic to talk about. And it's easier because it is abundantly clear to anybody that there were simple questions that could easily have been answered, which is children between the ages of two and five are advised by the World Health Organization not to wear a cloth mask, but the CDC to wear a cloth mask. It seems like an easy place where you would take many such children and randomize them in clusters to one or the other, and you will know the answer in one month. You know, that's very simple. You know, that's a simple, that's actually a simple question. And the fact they didn't do it speaks to gross incompetence, uh, tribalism, groupthink, and all the sort of failures. That is a failure to generate evidence in a time of crisis. And people like myself who naively thought this was only going to last for two months, ergo, you don't have to worry about evidence generation. Now find ourselves in year three when Alameda County just re-implemented mask mandates yeah. with no credible data after vaccinate. You know, okay. So this is why we talk about <laughs> cloth mask mandates. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. No, of course. Yeah, when you go ma- when you go mask mandate, you got to go big. You got to go for that <laughs> that porous cloth. All right. Well, I mean, I don't know. We could talk about this a long, time, but I guess my I'll give you my closing thoughts, and I'll take on this this guns issue, which I think is so tough. Um, I mean. 
I, I guess uh, the only thing I'd say is, you know, I was totally devastated, uh, especially with the school. And uh, I still am devastated. And I have difficulty even listening to media on the topic and thinking about the topic. And there are very few topics that devastate me so hard that I can't even sort of even try to, I try to even avoid, I yeah, can't even Yeah, listen. I'm avoidant of it. I'm, like it gives me trauma. Yeah. Like I, I can't function yeah. reading these stories. Yeah, I found myself in my car and, you know, just devastated. And anyway, um, and uh, and so I would absolutely, you know, do whatever it takes to solve the problem. Um, and I think that um, I think that if you really put a gun to my head and put me in charge, I think um, I think I would really think about mechanisms where we could try things and and really have an honest way of knowing if they are working or not simultaneously while studying the phenomenon as freely as possible uh, and as un, unbiased as possible and and if that means that you know maybe to make people happy about the quality of the research if you have to literally draft people to do this research who didn't want to do this research you know what i mean like mm. you know what is what you know we have to sort of think of ways that we can really sate everybody here that we're pulling in scientists who really don't feel strongly about this issue and maybe when you submit your nih grant you consent by submitting the grant that one percent of you could be drafted into projects of public importance this is one mm. and there are many other projects of public importance and so you get somebody he studies the mTOR pathway for instance right and then he finds out is my grant funded or not no but you have been drafted <laughs> into working on this issue and you're entering this issue without a straw, you know, presumably because these are people who didn't choose to do that issue with their life. Um, and you pull him in. But what does he have? He knows how to run experiments. He knows how to think about science. He presumably understands data. And um, maybe you get some consultants who do have um, content-specific expertise. Um, and then you get some unbiased methodologists. Um, and you try to work on this. And I think um, that would be what a society not in decline does. Uh, admitting that you know it's a complex policy problem, um, simple solutions may not be adequate. We need a lot more information. We need to make sure what we're doing is right, and we need to do it sort of incrementally. And and we got to work at it. And if we're and I mean right now, what is the status quo? Literally no progress in any direction as everything is paralyzed. That's I think unacceptable. That's yeah. part of a society in decline. Yeah. yeah. And then I I want to wrap the gun issue back yeah. just quickly with the healthcare violence issue. A society in decline does what we see now, which is you have patients that are abusing staff. And some of that is a function of the increasingly abusive nature of our healthcare system towards patients. The fact that we financially assault patients with surprise billing, the, the fact that we do things to people instead of for them because that's how we're trained and conditioned. We don't do it intentionally. And now you have this epiphenomenon of the cultural okayness to strike a nurse or to shoot a physician, it seems. So it's interesting, There's some. I think there was some data a while back that said nurses are more likely to be assaulted, but doctors are more likely to be killed. And mm. I think that's because with physicians, the patient, like who knows what was going on in this Oklahoma case, but it appeared this patient was angry at the pain post-op from a spine surgery that who knows you know, what, what the details are. And then consciously went, bought a weapon that day and targeted the physician who did his surgery uh, to kill this physician and then killed the patient killed himself. And that's a very direct kind of uh, uh, expression of dissatisfaction with a healthcare system that is so clearly apocalyptically dysfunctional. And yet we have laws that, we have systemic responses to it that are so woefully inadequate. In many states, it's not even, you know, it's like a misdemeanor or something to assault a, 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 a 
a healthcare professional. Um, many administrations will tell nurses and stuff, it's not worth pursuing this. You know, Sure, you were pregnant and this patient kicked you intentionally in the stomach in their right mind. Um, but you know what? It, it, it's gonna mess up our patient satisfaction scores or it's gonna mess up the perception that we're militarizing the hospital with security and so on. And so there is this, again, cultural epiphenomenon of the decay of the culture. We sound like conservatives in a way, don't we? We who talk about decay of, of culture, but I, I think it's a real phenomenon that well, uh, there's, there's there's truth in all points of view. Exactly you know? right, and so that conservative angle of you know what there <laughs> there are these sort of moral foundations, a sort of sanctity versus degradation that then epi epi almost epigenetically presents as these uh, phenomenon that we see, and I think there's definitely a, a, a kernel of truth, if not more, in that. On this healthcare thing, I'd say no. Buddy who works in healthcare should ever be assaulted, berated, demeaned. No one should certainly be uh, shot. Uh, these are unacceptable. Uh, no matter the quality of the service provided, is unacceptable. There is a remedy for dissatisfaction. It's the courts, and actually the courts are quite favorable often to malpractice litigation, etc., or other litigation. So that's the remedy. It's not violence, and I think we need to do lots of things so that people are safe, feel safe, and are safe. Uh, things that actually work, not just things that are token. Um, you know, I saw that somebody was like, oh, we should install some sort of metal detector at the door or something like that. I mean, I don't know if that's going to do the trick, to be honest with you. Um, uh, will somebody bring sort of a 3D printed plastic gun or something? You know, I mean, and it's going to be a huge burden. Now I gotta, everyone's going to wait in line for two hours to get into the hospital. You know, I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah. We could study it, et cetera. But that's one thing. The second thing is medicine also has part of the social contract. And that's, we should also discuss. And that social contract is, as you say, we have a duty not to find financially assault people, but we are swallowing 20% of GDP and climbing, and we're not delivering for that. We have a duty to offer services and surgeries that actually do work on average, and yet we have many things, particularly around pain, that we offer that we don't really know. Spine surgery, of course, an extremely controversial area with very low quality evidence suggesting that it works or not works. Some have been contradicted. Lack of ongoing sham controlled studies, et cetera. I mean, it's it's a weak evidence space. We have to be honest about that. What that means is that many people will undergo it and feel still feel very dissatisfied. Um, um, and other parts of medicine that are based on low quality evidence. Um, and then the final thing is, we have to be careful not to abuse our power, like depriving people of uh, visitation around dying in COVID times, which was uh, abuse of power. Um, so, you oh, know, yeah. both sides of the social contract need to be honored more. Um, but certainly, I certainly am strongly opposed to, you know, any violence on a physician. It's terrible. Yeah. and nurse, Unacceptable. And nurses are the ones who email me the most because they're the biggest victims of random assaults and not random, but assaults yeah. in, in healthcare. And, you know, what, many nurses tell me, you know, they work in um, some who work in prison uh, systems say they've they've never felt safer than working in a prison system with a population mm -hmm. of antisocial criminals than, than the, the, in a regular hospital where they got no support uh, or wow. felt unsafe and so on. Um, and, and, and I believe it. So, okay, to happier and more jovial topics, Ashish Jha, <laughs> our fellow brown person um, in power in the White House. Uh, you had some thoughts on his, some recent stuff with him, yeah? Yeah, so I call balls and strikes, okay? <laughs> I call balls and strikes. That's all I'm in the business of. You know what? You know, I, you, you do a good job, you're going to get uh, my praise. And you make mistakes, you're going to get my condemnation. And so what happened was um, there's a little clip that's going viral. And the clip is this. As Ashish Jha is finishing his press conference, and he's the White House COVID czar now. He used to be a tweeter. He used to be on Twitter. He's a faculty member who did some work in global health. 
and policy. And he tweeted a lot about COVID and his tweets went viral. And that caught the attention of the White House. I mean, we have to be honest. He, he has that job because he was on Twitter. If he wasn't on Twitter, he wouldn't have that job. They did somebody else. Okay, that's the reality. That's life. He's on the stage and they ask him, Dr. Jaw, does the Biden administration commit to have 100% of schools open in person in the fall? And somebody interrupts and says, you know what? We're done here. We'll take the next question. And he's he, he whisked off stage. And of course, people are pissed because that's a really important issue to people. In fact, it might be a, dis- a key voting issue this fall. And the answer was easy. Yes, we are committed. Yes, we are committed to that. Yes, yes. They have to be in school, in person. Yes, that's the easy answer. Could have just said yes, but he didn't comment. Then on social media, people were mocking him for that shitty response, which, you know, to some degree he maybe had coming, but also he was in a rush, so it's fair. I mean, it's something in between. Um, But then one person said, well, this is very unfair because Ashish Jha has always been a vocal proponent for schools. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to call bullshit on that because that is where you're telling bullshit. Ashish Jha, like a lot of people, are clever politicians, and he never really took a strong stance. He always said schools before bars, okay? But he didn't say schools. You know what I said? I said, you want to open bars or close bars? I, I could care less, but that school better be open. That was my standpoint. But if you say schools before bars, you know, it's, it's bringing these two things together. The next point. What should it take to open schools? Ashish Jha was very vocal in 2020 that if there is high rates of community transmission, it's unsafe to open schools. And he had some number that was a make-believe number. There was never any evidence to support that claim. That was just patently not true. Even at those rates of transmission, schools should have been open. And he created this rule because it makes him look like this is a true for so many people. So many people who really don't want to make a courageous stance, they create some bullshit rule where they're always going to say they were right. Oh, I was all for opening schools as long as you would do it safely. And what does safely mean? Well, you have to install a $100,000 HEPA filter in the school, then you can open schools. But of course, they weren't going to do that. So what's the choice? The reality, should we open or not open? And courage is to say, we should do what Sweden did or Switzerland did six weeks into the pandemic, which is reopen. It don't matter. Those things are not so important. It's much more important that they're in school. He didn't say that. He wasn't a vocal proponent of opening schools. He played it politically, center of the road, created sort of impossible to meet standards to reopen schools, and schools didn't open. That's one. And two, the reason people are asking the Biden administration is that we have to be honest, it was the blue places that kept them closed and not the red places. The red places, DeSantis was right. Is he right about everything? No. But was he right about schools? Absolutely. And who was wrong? Gavin Newsom was wrong. You know, we got to be honest. Got to be honest. The liberals totally blew it. They blew the schools issue. And so for somebody to tell me that Ashish Jha was always pro-school, that's not true. He created impossible standards for it to reopen. He never was as forceful as he ought to have been. Um, He played it like a politician plays it, taking some weasel middle road, middle of the ground answer. But the one thing he didn't count on was on this one issue, the pendulum has swung so hard that if you weren't vigorously pro-school, you were on the wrong side of that issue. And so that's the bottom line. Man. Yeah, I got nothing to add to that. I think uh, uh, you know, when you look back with the retrospectoscope, the, the 
clo- closing of schools. And, and people will still say, well, no, we just didn't know enough and so on. No, 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 no. We started oh, to know enough really up. quick. And the harm that's been done is like, it is like an inter- intergenerational trauma that's going to ripple out. You're talking about the decline of society. Again, I don't want to get too- And it will contribute to the first problem. It'll contribute to e- the first problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't think, you don't think that pandemic isolation and all the bullshit that happened it didn't contribute to all the wave of shit we're seeing now. I mean, we saw it before the pandemic, but it's all this pent up isolation and detachment and so on. I mean, I, I know many friends, in fact, who've gone off the rails during pandemic in terms of mental health and so on, because we're we're social creatures and you've disrupted, you've, you've disrupted it. Now, some of it is inevitable disruption of a pandemic. Sure, that's fine. But a lot of it is mm-hmm. self-inflicted wounds of policies that just, just, don't make sense. Like this Alameda bringing masking back. Oh, God. Look, so Omicron, dumb. you look at the data yeah, now, it's up, everywhere. Man. It's highly contagious. The virus has evolved to a point where it is absolutely everywhere. Putting a piece of black cloth on your face is not going to do anything except for <laughs> make you know make some people who are poorly informed feel better about it. Even in the Bay Area. Maybe make me look be- maybe make me look better, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I gotta say one thing about this schools. It's not I you know, I it, it's not just in the retrospective scope. I wasn't a school policy scholar, okay, but I'm a policy person, and I just read some shit in the summer of 2020, and I quickly figured out that they should be reopened. And you know who else figured it out? Switzerland, Norway, Spain, the United Kingdom. You know who didn't? And you know who else figured out? The governor of Florida. Who didn't figure it out? New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, you know, uh, San Francisco. This doesn't make any sense. It's not a retrospect thing. It's some people were so... Uh, and and the the crux of it, I think, is that it's all about that Trump. Yeah, Trump. Trump it's said all about he Trump. It. Yeah. yeah, I know. They're yeah. all Trump, and they're so they hate Trump more than they love kids, and they just have no they have no compass. I mean, Z, I think the reality is most people, for most of the things they believe, they have no idea why they hold those views. They haven't really interrogated it. They just believe things that their tribe believes. It's it's it it's dangerous. I mean. I don't know. I mean, who, I, I who, 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 who was it? Socrates? I don't know who said an unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, it, you yes. really do have to investigate your own. And look, we all have our blind spots because a lot of times it's the very personality aspect or belief structure that is the lens through which we see the world and therefore we, we're blind to it. It's, it's like looking through the looking. And so that's why it's important when someone actually uh, criticizes you. I think it's important to look back and go, okay, there's a lot of noise in that. Uh, a lot of it's ad hominem, a lot of it's hate, a lot of it's bias, whatever. But then some of it, there's a kernel of truth there. What is that? Let me reflect on that. Okay, okay, I can see that piece. It's not gonna change my mind, but it is gonna make me investigate a little bit more how I'm seeing things. And I don't think a lot of us do that well at all. And certainly not the people who made the policies to keep schools closed. And then you have all the vested interests that come in and, and that, that, that uh, they get something out of keeping schools closed. And you know, it, it, <laughs> it, so much harm and, and you're right, it's not a pure retrospective scope thing. But what I'm yeah. saying is looking at it in retrospect, yeah. whoever was prospectively saying that was actually yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this yeah. is, it, it's clear, right? Absolutely. So, so Ash, so, okay. So now what about this annual COVID shot they're talking about now? Again, I, <clears throat> I feel like, and this is just, oh shoot, wait. You gotta cut back yeah, to you. Yeah, I gotta cut back <laughs> to me. See, I, I, I'm losing it. Um, the... By the way, you know, bald people do not look good with AirPods in. Can you see that? <laughs> it looks like I've got a couple no, no. cigarettes hanging Sorry. out of my head. People don't look good with AirPods in. People 
they don't look good. I like that you've you've normalized baldness by saying, you know, we're all people. Even if you're bald, we're it's, all people. It's okay. We're you all know people. what I gotta say. These AirPods are stupid. I mean, they are the worst. I, I don't know why people like them. I was in an airplane and, um, you know, I think I reached for something and I bumped my ear and it like popped out, but took two bounces. You know how it took me like 45 minutes to go find that damn AirPod yeah, stuck under yeah, someone's but, seat. I mean, this is such a stupid invention. But you already told me the reason for that, which is your mom used to punish you by pulling on your ears. Yeah, by pulling my ear. And you, but no, it fell out of the ear she didn't pull, dude. It, <laughs> fell, out the, it fell out of the good ear. It fell out of the good ear. It fell out of the, it fell ear. Out of the yeah. control ear. <laughs> the the Control ear, yeah. The ear that's harder to reach. You know, the driver can get one ear, can't get the other ear, did, can't get the did, right ear. Yeah, it you, fell out of the good ear. Did, did, you, did your mom ever do the thing where she took off her, her chuppel, her, her slipper, and threw it at you? <laughs> and threatened. Yeah. Uh, Thre no, threatened to, you know, like how they threw it at George W. Bush. In oh, yeah, Iraq. right, yeah. <laughs> no, my mom would my mom would let it lo let it loose, though. She would just throw, I would get hit, hit in the face with a slipper. It's apparently, it's common in... Um, in Mexican culture too, they call it la chancla, mm -hmm. like the, the 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 slipper or whatever, and they'll just it'll come flying. There was a real funny YouTube video. Anyways, so back to what were we talking about? AirPods looking like a douche. Um, oh, annual COVID, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, annual yeah, COVID, COVID shot. So what? What? Uh, I got to say this one thing. I feel like we're fetishizing repeated vaccination without data, as as yeah. as some sort of control fetish. And the truth is you get your primary series plus or minus the booster if you're eligible for that and you need that great, wonderful, C continuing to flog the vaccine uh, pony when immunity is gonna develop in other ways anyways, it, it seems a little bit uh, insane. And yet, and yet we're requiring these college students to boost and they're emailing me saying, I almost wanna drop out of Stanford or UCLA or these top California schools because they're forcing me to do this. And I actually have principles that I actually like science and there's no data that this is gonna help me or really reduce transmission to others. And yet they're forcing me to do this to myself for no good reason. So back to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another example of why we say COVID policy went off the rails, which is that um, coercion is a massive power and coercing a personal medical intervention on somebody is a huge power. And I am not saying it should never be used, but if it is to be used, it has to be used when it's used appropriately with the right checks and balances under the right conditions and forcing someone to get the third dose of a vaccine that doesn't halt transmission and uh, may or may not even further their lower risk, their risk of severe disease, as in the case of a 20-year-old boy in college, is an abuse of coercion. I mean, there's no doubt about that. That's an abuse um, and will historically look like a grave error and will rot the trust in public health and lead to the further death spiral of society. I hate to say it. Yeah. Um, what they're talking about now is a yearly COVID shot. And they're going to be having a advisory committee to discuss this. And I've got nothing against COVID shots that prove themselves. And the question is, what will it mean to prove a yearly COVID shot? What they are talking about is a regulatory pathway where each summer the FDA says, here are the three strains we think are going to be a problem in the fall. We don't know they're going to be a problem in the fall, but we think these are the three strains. And if you, drug company, make an antibody, if you make a vaccine that develops antibodies that hit these three strains with a certain amount of antibody, we will give you approval to vaccinate that fall. What I want them to say is that if you, drug company, run a randomized controlled trial of people and show a reduction in severe disease or hospitalization, we will give you approval to vaccinate, to, to vaccinate people with that. And you might say, well, how can they do that trial? Because the season hasn't started yet. Say, just go to the Southern Hemisphere, my friend, and run it there. And if you run it in Australia, New Zealand, you know, and then you bring it back up here, I'm happy to accept those results, you know? Okay, yeah. this is the dilemma. The FDA wants to 
just have them get the approval based on hitting the target, and I want to see clinical data. I think the FDA is going to set the standard dangerously low if they push this through. It's going to be dangerously low because one of those sequences, you know, why do we have myocarditis? I think, you know, it has been very poorly explicated. There is some FDA documents about this this Novovax um, where they suspect it might be that the spike epitopes have uh, homology to some cardiac epitopes so that antibody also binds the heart. We don't know exactly. It is incredibly not incredibly, it is possible that you will change the sequence in that mRNA vaccine and you will get less myocarditis, but it's also possible you will get more and a lot more. You don't know what you're going to get. And so if you don't do any controlled clinical trials beyond looking at antibody levels, you may be missing massive safety signals. You also don't even know you're benefiting people who already have, you know, who are young and healthy, et cetera. Um, so I think this is an important moment in regulatory history where either we're going to have a reasonable and high standard for approving vaccine after vaccine in perpetuity, or we're going to have a low standard. And what I worry even more is once they approve it, you know hospitals are going to mandate it because people are so brain dead that everything that's a, everything that's EUA authorized has to be mandated has to be mandated they don't understand some things can be a choice and you don't have to take it it's okay we don't have to force everyone it's immediately from EUA to mandate it goes hand in hand that's also a feature of a broken society incapable of splitting the difference or having some nuance yep yep there's no you know I, I actually hmm. and we've talked about this before I feel like what has happened is what Ian McGilchrist points out in his book, Master and, and, his, and His Emissary, about the split between left brain and right brain, right brain being holistic, relational, emotional, connected, seeing the web of complexity and seeing a thing in its context. And it has its emissary, which is the left brain, which can drill down, break a thing into its parts, analyze the parts. And so it's a good servant of the right brain. What what happens though, is because the left brain has the capacity to speak, whereas the right doesn't, the right's the mm-hmm. silent master until the mm-hmm. left realizes I'm the only one who can communicate with the world. And so mm-hmm. his argument in the book is that societies progress from a right-brained artistic, holistic culture to a left-brained bureaucratic shit show of reductionism where you think that you take a part, you go, well, if, if vaccine makes antibody, antibody means safe, mandate it because then everyone will be safe. Okay, that's left brain thinking. <laughs> right. And so you have now a bureaucratic technocracy that, that reduces human beings to these little widgets, and and that's the ascendancy of the emissary uh, instead of, of of the actual duality of having having this relational brain that's connected and has this servant of the left brain. Now the, the servants become the overthrown the master and is created. It, it's like I don't know if you ever saw Fantasia, but when Mickey Mouse and the Wizard, Mickey Mouse is the it's the Wizard's apprentice. The wizard is there, he's like magician, he's the master, and he goes away and leaves the servant to clean up. The servant finds the wand and it's like, wait, I can do magic. And it becomes a complete shit show of chaos until the wizard comes back. And I think that's what's happening in in, in the broader uh, culture, honestly. That's really interesting. It's also entirely non-evidence-based. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know, some of these sort of like, Philosophical frameworks for how to think about culture are inherently, you know, not subject to the rules of evidence. They're so broad, but they are important to really think about where we are. And, um, you know, that's why people spend careers doing that. Yeah, I want to talk about one thing. Yeah. <laughs> the, jo- the job, the jobs. 
Oh, so tell this me week, about this. Yeah. Yeah, this week, and this is something that will resonate with you. This week, I got some bad news from people. And by the way, it all came at once. And I was like, dude, I'm just uh, going to go. I got to go to uh, like my Thursday. I was like, I got to go to bed early because uh, I, I can't. I don't know what's going to happen. Next. Can, 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 can I stop news. you? Any time yeah. you internally say, I've got to go to bed early because I can't take it anymore, that is a bad sign. I've, I've been many times in that position. I'm just going to go to bed at eight right now. <laughs> it's like, I, I need wasn't even tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I just got to read. I need another day. Um, I guess I'd say somebody who works with me for a long time, who I really admire and I really like working with, this person took another job. Oh. And and then somebody who worked with me a short time, who I really like, I was just by chance praising this person and made a kind of a joke that, you know, uh, there are two people in the room. And if one of them had to get sick, you know, of course, I hope neither one gets sick. But if one has to get sick, it better be this one because this person is really, really important. You know, I made a joke <laughs> like that. Okay. Um, and then this person's like, you know, I have to stop you. I feel so uncomfortable. I'm quitting the job. You know, I'm like, oh my God. And so it's like what? one person quits, two people quit. And then I'm like, who? And then just, uh, you know, and then, and then a third person quit on me, uh, quit something different. These are all different parts of my life. It's not like there's a, there's no pattern here. Um, I try to reflect. Why is this happening? It's you. Mostly it's I, you. <laughs> I was like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? I was really struggling to understand why me. And what about me? Would you know what's going to happen to me after this? No, but I really tried to reflect and I talked to these people and I really tried to get a sense. And one person told me something that will really resonate, which was, I really love this job. But ever since we came to Zoom, you know, it's a Zoom world. And by the way, you know, um, I'm a doc, you know, well, this person's job is more research-based, so it's not like, it, it is really, un you know, for better or worse, it's Zoom-based. And, you you know, a, a lot of the UCSF labs haven't even gone back in person and in my department, et cetera. Mm. So anyway, this person has been Zoom, and this person was like, you know, I really like it, but um, I'm switching jobs because I want a job where I can just go and sit there and talk to people about how their weekend was and then come home. And I was like, wow, you know, that's oh. what I said. Oh man, this is the great resignation, the great quit. People, I think this has yeah. been a trigger where people are like, wait, what? You know what's crazy though, Vinay, so how do you parse the idea that a lot of people who work at say Apple or Google, they throw a shit hissy fit when they're told they need to come back into the office so many days a week. Many of them quit or they go basically effectively go on strike saying, no, this is not flexible. We work from home, et cetera. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Here's, here's what I think. I don't know. And you tell me what you think. I think that they have a job that they actually do all the work in like two hours and then the rest of the day they just screw around. I mean, I think yeah. that like, I don't know, maybe people aren't giving them more work to do. Uh, maybe they're super efficient. I mean, and maybe two hours is the most we can really, really, really focus and work. But I'm sure that at home, this dude who works for Apple, he's like, dude, I, I'm done 10 to, 10 to noon. Then I get lunch. I go for a walk. I, you know, I walk my dog. I, you know, I hang out at home, um, whatever. I think they are like totally comfortable with that. And the thought of going to work and sitting there and looking at the clock and making sure your boss's cubicle isn't looking at your cubicle, like that's a buzzkill. Um, that's my thought. Yeah, no, I don't know. Being I think, a doctor is different because you gotta, you gotta. I mean, there's if you're there, you're working, and if you're not there, you're not working. That's you know? a, that, that. That's right. Being a doctor is different. But but I'll say, you know, like when when I had my studio in Las Vegas, and me and Tom yeah. and Logan were there, and you know, we would we knew this 
fact about all three of us. We value autonomy. We're quite efficient when we're in our zone. And our zone was between 9 a.m. to about 1 p.m. That's when we're firing right before they would eat lunch. And so we would just make, we're like, you know what? Why, why do we need to stay here in the studio all day? Let's do our most productive work. And then we can get out. And if there's stuff that needs, still needs to be done, we can do it right. from home. And it worked out well. But but I'll say, you know, and again, I think each job is different. So there's no one size answer for it. But I do think there is an importance to in-person interaction with your colleagues. Now, I'm not saying live in a cubicle doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs. I did a job like that, fresh out of uh, residency. Because uh, I, I don't know if you know this, I, I um, when I finished my internal medicine residency, I was so just disillusioned. And I don't know if it was burned out, but it was really, I was just, I don't know that I can do this for my life. This is such so a- So you were a, a model for a few years. <laughs> I was a male model, and, but the You're only model, yeah. but okay. the only country that would consider me male model material was Luxembourg. It was really strange. They, they so there's a lot of watches, a lot of a watches. Lot of watches. <laughs> I, I, the aesthetic. I have a Luxembourgian physique. Apparently, I've completely fabricated it. But, but but so so I I, I said you know what I got to explore what the Silicon Valley is about. So I went and worked for a couple different tech startups. Now mm. one of them was a key, one of them was a work from home job where I created educational materials for an online site and that is now since defunct. And so I was working from home with my wife who had also graduated residency with me, but was going re-residencing in radiology, but we had a year off. And so working from home like that, the only person I ever saw was my wife. It was so weird that there was no separation between home and, and work. And it was so isolating that I hated it and ended up quitting. Then I went into the job where I had to go in every single day. There was no remote work. And I sat in a cubicle with other people who sat in cubicles for eight hours. And I was like, this makes me want to basically- Kill yourself. Yeah, I, this is where I want liberal gun laws so I can come back with a weapon and shoot this, I'm kidding. It was- it was oh, no. <laughs> oh my God. Not even a good yeah, joke. It's not even a good joke. It is inappropriate. But I will say that's how I felt so dehumanized by that. So you've got to find a balance. There's got to be something that's appropriate for the work and the person, and there's got to be some customizability. So for me, you know, it's a mix of those things that I think is important, the flexibility and the in-person relational stuff. I guess I have to admit that that's why I like medicine because um, what's our work-life balance like? I mean, there are definitely days you, I mean, when you're in clinic, you got to be there. You got to get up and be there on time and do it. And you're there until a certain time. When you're on rounds, you can, you have some flexibility when round starts, but you don't get to round from home. I mean, uh, I know some, people some say Some people they, do. <laughs> yeah. You know. It's not a good idea. No, I disagree strongly. People, everyone's like, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, not every visit has to be in person. Absolutely. There's certainly some visits that can be by telephone or by Zoom, but some visits have to be in person. Yeah. And taking care of somebody who's in the hospital, it has to be in person. I yep. mean, come on. I, how can, you need all your senses when you go in there. Um, anyway. So that's part of our job. Then research, very flexible, can be done on Zoom. We have Zoom meetings. I try to keep it engaging, as engaging as it can be on that hellscape platform. Um, <laughs> and then a lot of travel. And as an academic, you know, we travel a lot, give lectures. And, you know, I, I found in the COVID, you know, when COVID hit, I was so grateful. I had some travel. I didn't want to go. I was definitely traveling too much. But then I quickly realized what it's like to travel too little. Yeah. And, you know, there's a sweet spot, right? So you get a blend of all the things in medicine. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know why do people want to work. I, I think the generation is different too. Like, um, I don't know. I mean, I have a job that is very different than a lot of people's jobs. And you have a job that's very different than a lot of people's jobs. And here's why it's different. 90% of what I do, I have chosen as my task for myself. Mm. You know, I have some clinics that are assigned to me and people tell me what to do for like clinical duties. But in my research, what are we studying? How much are we working on it? Where are we publishing? You know, we're working on Substack and YouTube and this podcast and um, all the things that I'm working on. That's, that's, you know, I picked it. I put that on my plate. And you're the same way. You're 100%, right? Everything you yeah. work on is what you choose to work. Nobody telling you what to do. Yeah. Um, and that's very different than I think if we worked for a job where 100% of what we did was they told us to do it. That, that, no, that's a, that's a huge point is there's these sort of three aspects to feeling real capable in your job, having tools like technology to do what you want, having teams like support. And you're talking about, you know, this real trauma of losing members of your team, right? It is, it's a trauma. And it's a trauma. and then the, the, but the thing you're pointing at now is the trust. So it's trust to do what you need to do, the latitude to to have autonomy to do your job is key. And the fact that you choose what you're doing, this is why, this, okay, I'll be honest with you. This is why I chose to be a hospitalist because the job that I signed up for at Stanford was a job where you go in, you you see the patients, you're done when you're done seeing the patients, mm, you go home, no. you take phone calls, you get on Epic, you finish your charting from home maybe, if you get called and if you're on call, you go in. So it, it, it was, you were never compelled really. You did it the way you wanted to do it. Now clinic job on the other hand, you're there from nine until six until your charting's done and it's scheduled regimented and there's nothing you can do about it. For me, that wasn't a fit. I, I it would drive me crazy. So it's very personal too, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I do a little bit of both and I have to admit, I like the inpatient scheduling better because you know it's more in your control. And, um, and then the other thing I like about inpatient, of course, is that you know where to find people, you know? And sometimes yeah. in clinic, somebody's like 50 minutes late and you're like, oh. And my policy is, oh, maybe I shouldn't say, but my policy is I will always see anybody as long as I'm still there. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not one of these cut people off thing because, you know, I know what it's like. You, you come in a long way. So, you know, I'm always yeah. gonna see you as long as I'm still there. Um, but it's gonna, be a, it's gonna be a rough last hour if everyone yeah. comes at once. You yeah, know, and, that's, and that's what always seems to, seems to, seems to happen. Always. Um, when it rains, it pours. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And you know, the whole idea of a black cloud and a white cloud, I talked about this with my friend, John Kniff on the show, who's a hospitalist who hired mm -hmm. me all the way back in the day, kind of a mentor. And he, he basically, you know, we were talking about how the, the black cloud, white cloud, it is not a yeah. real thing in the sense that it's not like you're luckier or whatever, it's that, your attitude towards your circumstance is different. And um, when you're a white cloud, you just, you, you, again, the glass is half full and you're making do with what you can. Where you're a black cloud, it's like everything is, a, is why is this happening to me? Like what you're saying, why is this happening to me? What is it that I don't deserve this and so on? And it's like, oh, those sh that should thinking is actually a cognitive distortion. And, uh, you know, looking at it differently can, can change it. Um, you mean the world doesn't revolve around us, Z? It doesn't you know what? revolve around us? I, uh, I think Galileo and Copernicus were full of shit. Like, <laughs> absolutely everything revolves around us. <laughs> what else can it revolve around? Look at my head. Does it not look like a celestial body with a high gravitational attraction? Come on, dude. Tell me. In Luxembourg, <laughs> like I'm a, a fucking star. 
You're an underwear model. You forgot that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're Marky Mark. You're Marky Mark in Luxembourg. I'm Marky Mark in Luxembourg. <laughs> except in Luxembourg, they wear their they wear their underwear on their head. It's a strange cultural thing. <laughs> yeah, strange, I like to yeah. pick on a country I know nothing about. Um, speaking of something I know nothing about, I know a little bit about. But this monkeypox thing, dude. Okay, it's like gonna, yeah. yeah, it's almost. I know I'm gonna go there because um, you got to educate me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, so this is what I understand about monkeypox. Here's an interesting side note that I think. Um, so my one of my best friends in the world, uh, this guy Dr. Harry, he's been on the show a few times. Pediatrician. We started Z Dog kind of together, and we did these music videos and stuff. And he's the guy who really got me into vaccine advocacy when I was young because he would tell me, you know, there are a lot of people who don't vaccinate their kids because they're afraid it's gonna cause autism and so on. And I'm like, well, is that mm. true? And had to research it. And it's like, oh, it's not true. So anyways, his um, his wife is also a, a physician and her dad was a, uh, um, a, a, a doc who was a microbiologist in Taiwan back in the day. And he wrote as his dissertation, one of the seminal pieces in 1970 on monkeypox, because at that point it had first been described in um, uh, humans because it was discovered in 1958 in a colony of research monkeys. That's why it got the name mm. monkeypox, even though monkeys weren't the even primary resident. rodent pox, it should it, be rodent that's pox. That's right, rat pox, son. Um, or whatever, okay. or like, you know, ground squirrel pox, uh, pouched rat pox. And so the idea that then it was endemic to Africa, it was a zoonotic infection <clears throat> with a reservoir in animals, so you were never gonna eradicate it, but it required close contact with bodily fluids or, you know, rat juice, uh, more or less, and that it could spread from human to human, but only with um, prolonged close contact between, again, fluids or respiratory droplets, so big pieces of mucus that are flying out of your mouth or spit and that getting into another person's mouth or eyes. And um, so difficult to transmit, but not unheard of. And the interesting twist is it turns out smallpox has a lot of homology. They're both orthopox viruses in that same family. And as a result, uh, the smallpox vaccination, which is a vaccinia virus that triggers a local inflammatory response. I have the scar myself because I was vaccinated against smallpox, one of the last people to be so. Um, this is why you're not in fear of monkeypox, by the way. You've got some cross immunity. Look at you, you gallivanting know, around, you know, fearless. You know, I gotta say me. this, for the people who are listening audio only podcasts, they're not gonna see this, but this is important. When monkeypox came up, I was like, hey, monkeypox, can you hear this? Let me turn it up for you. <laughs> okay. uh, I don't. I don't care about you because I'm probably. I mean, maybe or maybe not. So the monkey, the smallpox vaccination has some crossover immunity, about 85 percent in an observational mm -hmm. trial, and so uh, you didn't see a whole ton of monkey. You got to cut back to you. You're oh, looking yeah, at my there beautiful thank face. You, thank oh, yeah, there you. There you go. You know what's great? <laughs> I love this because you actually call me when I can't because uh, you can see it. Because I can see it when yeah, I'm not clipping back and good, forth. Yeah. Whereas normally a guest can't can't tell me. So so. Um, there was immunity, but now that's all waning because uh, we're no longer vaccinating. We stopped in like 72 in the United States and so on. So I actually got it in 73 when I was born because I went to India. My mom squirreled me away to India where I think they were, they were still vaccinating. And so long story short, now we see a resurgence. It's actually been increasing in Africa and, and people have been kind of talking about it. There are a couple of uh, vaccines against smallpox that still might be effective against it. There's also a treatment um, that's T-Pox, the generic uh, name for it. T-Pox. T-Pox, West Side. West, West Africa. Rapper name. West Africa side, right? That's a, is that your, is, is that, that a you look like a T-Pox. <laughs> Maybe I'd be V-Pox. 
Oh, vaccinia pox. I like that. Yeah. I like that. That's hot. Yeah. That's hot. In Luxembourg, it's hot. Uh, in America. Luxembourg. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, my, hey, you know, I always told you my podcast is more popular in Western Europe than the U.S. You know that, right? You know, this makes perfect sense because the Western Europeans yeah. care about shit nobody cares about, like uh, oncology and, and clinical trials. They care about like let's let's all be careful and like use our resources for for the stewardship of the community. And here we're like make it rain with those canceled drugs, you know? I was like, come on. Um, <laughs> T pox. T-Pox, make it rain. V-Pox. Make it rain. Make it rain. So long story short, now we're in a situation where we're seeing non-endemic spread of monkeypox, um, a few hundred cases in places that you haven't heard about it. Originally in the male males who have sex with male or men who have sex with men population. Okay, let me ask you this question. Yes. This is the question that I got to ask you. Um, 10 years ago, I think it would have been culturally very appropriate that every time they talk about monkeypox to acknowledge that the vast majority of cases to date are in men who have sex with men. Uh, of course, in the modern world, uh, I think it's maybe some people view that as politically incorrect to make that fact known. And they talk about how, you know, quote unquote, everyone is at risk of monkeypox, which is also true. You know, uh, all people are at risk of monkeypox. That's not untrue, yep. but they don't emphasize that fact that it is currently undergoing rampant transmission in the men who have sex with men community. So my question to you is, is political correctness getting in the way of accurate and informative public health messaging that actually targets people who really do need to take more precautions than other people? Oh, 100%. I mean, if you, it took me how long of researching through <clears throat> articles to find someone who would say that the mm -hmm. outbreak currently is in a population of men who have sex with men and in these particular scenarios and so on. Now, why, why, why is that politically correct? Because you might stigmatize that population if you're a moron and, and prejudiced right. already and a dick, yeah. But you know, you'd think society's grown up since the HIV uh, epidemic and Instead, what that information tells us is, okay, so what are the highest risk groups that we can target for the most effective intervention? What also can we learn about transmission patterns and how can we help prevent it from spreading wider? If we'd actually done that early on with HIV, like those lessons have been taught and yet we are not learning them. And, and as Monica Gandhi has said, because this is kind of her lane, she said, you know, but you don't tell people don't have sex. You say, here are the precautions. Here are the things you look for when you're symptomatic. I gotta say one thing about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is one person who is a public health scholar who had a long thread about how the right way to handle monkeypox is not to tell people not to have sex, to meet men where they are and suggest safer ways to do it and to be vigilant for the right signs and to do contact tracing and those sorts of things. Yes. But not to have this blanket. This is the same person who said we should lock down and definitely <laughs> mask toddlers, you know? And I'm like, how can you not see it on one issue? You're right, harm reduction. On the other issue, you just don't get it. Why? How did this happen to you? Man, it's a cognitive of dissonance you know it's the same thing it's like you know w w when covid first started people were saying you know it's mostly elderly people with chronic disease who are who are at risk for dying that's where we need to f maybe focus our efforts and then that evolved to let's mask a two-year-old and shut down school and it's like yeah, wait wait exactly. what exactly. so say it now with monkeypox what is interesting is there is a twist now where they i guess they sequenced the genome or did something and they saw about 
a really unusually high number of mutations in this monkeypox relative to whatever the you know the the Cameroon strain or whatever the original strain was. Um, there are two strains actually that were classically looked at. There was a West African strain and a uh, Congo River Basin strain, I believe. And the Congo Basin strain had a higher uh, case fatality rate than the the West African strain. So the question is, DNA virus. It's a double stranded DNA virus. Those are typically less prone to mutations because the software in that DNA virus tends to be better at error correction than say an RNA virus like um, like COVID. So the question is why so many mutations are, do those mutations have uh, an impact on how it's transmitted? And is it gonna become now endemic in humans to where it's transmitted from human to human and it's another uh, problem that we have to deal with? So curious where you are in all this. Obviously, you know, monkeypox mutations is a subject near and dear to my heart and I'm always... <laughs> I guess the the first thought I have, and this is as somebody who has no knowledge of this, but my first thought would be, I would be immediately curious when somebody says, we have a sense of how many mutations should occur. I just want to know, uh, you're making that claim based on sort of what sample size data. Are we talking about, you know, how many people and, you know, how I mean, because I suspect that for, for things you don't talk about that often, the uncertainty bounds are probably bigger than you say. So maybe yeah. this is actually more expected than you make it out to be. Um, my only other thought about monkeypox is I just noticed that the New York Department of Health, the moment they heard about monkeypox, they were like, and by the way, the best thing you can do to avoid monkeypox <laughs> is wear a mask, wear a mask in public. I'm like, dude, you just can't, you can't just hijack everything into your, your fucking mask. I mean, everything's got to be there. You got to wear the mask. That's how, that's how monkeypox is going around. Oh, in human history, the one time we're wearing the mask, that's when it has the outbreak, but it's the mask that will solve, of course. You, wait, of course. You, got, I mean, you, got, you got testicle cancer? Were you not wearing your mask? What's We're going not on masked there? up. The best way to avoid, uh, you know, the testicle cancer is to mask up. I mean, is everything masked up? Shut up. Shut up. And of course, it was totally wrong. You could see the corny, like, high school prom uh, rap uh, PSAs that they would write, you know, yo, mask your nuts if you don't want cancer. It, it, the, whole, the whole thing is absolutely. T-box. T-box. T-box in the house. <laughs> By the way, I, when I, listen, the one population of people I think we should stigmatize and really focus on in the monkeypox epidemic are MSM, men who have sex with monkeys. That is a problem <laughs> and uh, you don't want that. By the way, Peter Gabriel had already called this so many years ago, right, with Shock the Monkey, which I never knew what it was about. Apparently it was about when you're in a romantic relationship and you're triggered by something that triggers your kind of unconscious rage, you just shocked the monkey, which... Now I I I I hate that song. What? Like, that's dumb. You know, right? So I know the song and I actually really like Peter Gabriel. Me too. Who I think is actually kind of a, a brilliant composer in his Oh, own he's way. a genius, yeah. But what is Shock the Monkey? I don't think I ever knew what it was. What does it mean? I, I think if I read correctly, because I was Googling oh, this after. it's not a literal monkey. It's a metaphor for your feelings. It's a metaphor okay. for your feelings. You know, don't you know you're gonna shock the monkey? And he's like, watch the monkey get hurt, monkey. And have you heard, I mean, Sledgehammer, of course, one of my oh, favorites. Yeah, and then right. I recently heard a video of Harry Styles singing Sledgehammer. What? And, you know, Oh, it's good, dude. He's actually legit singer. It was good, dude. One say. Direction, Harry Styles. No. Yep. Yep. No. You watch. Watch. Go, you, I swear to you. Google YouTube this Harry Styles singing Sledgehammer, and you will think differently of this guy. I'm like, oh, the dude can. He actually takes it seriously. He can sing. Um, that is awesome. I mean, a great song. Give me Salisbury steam. Hill. Uh, Salisbury Hill. Right. You yeah, know what beautiful. though? I'll say this. I am old enough to. 
appreciate Peter Gabriel's Genesis days when he was in Genesis with Phil Collins mm. on drums, and then Phil wow. and then he left, and Phil Collins took the uh, took the the vocal spot. <clears throat> but man, it got it was some crazy shit in those days, progressive rock and all that. Um, speaking of crazy, you know, I got to tell you one well, funny yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this dude. Aaron Goodman, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. I mean, he's 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 a guitarist. He's in a band, man, and he um and he jams. And uh, you know, I uh, I've dabbled myself, as you know. You know, I used to play in in college and uh, and beyond a little bit and write some songs. Yeah. And I know you play, you know. And um, he was telling me that recently he was at uh, Ash conference, and people were like, "Oh man, Aaron Goodman, can I get a photo with you? Can I get a photo with? Can I get your? Can I get you to sign my Ash thing?" And he was like, "Whoa, whoa, what, 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 what's going on?" And he was like, "Oh, did they hear my heard of my band?" And then they're like, "No, man, I see you on Twitter, and you got the best hematology tutorial." <laughs> And then I was like, oh, no. Can you imagine? He only wanted to be known for being a good guitarist, and he's known for the hematology tweetorial. You know what? As someone who wanted to be a rock star when he grew up, I will take the fame where I can get it. Okay? Hey, Z, I I really like what you said about nurse violence. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. Do you want an autograph? No, that's dumb, dude. Let's do a selfie. But, like, you got to get taller. You can shut up right now. In Luxembourg, I'm considered seven foot tall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. Anyone who dreamed of play, you know, being known for playing music, it's it's I'll tell you Z, it's a letdown, man. It is it's a real letdown. It's a it's real, a real letdown. letdown, dude. It's a real like letdown. fire up the prolactin cuz I am let down, dude. It's bad. Um speaking of letdown. They're like uh, oh. I, I love your publication in the Mayo Clinic proceedings. They're like, "Oh, no, not Mayo Clinic proceedings." It's not That's it's, not, it's not even penis. <laughs> Like at least, at least I could say, oh, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm big in penis, you know. Well, speaking of penis, they're publishing some p shit. Oh, there I mean, you go. They have a p- new, a new piece of shit study, and <laughs> they're not. They have two tracks. They have a track for members of the academy and non-members of the academy. And if you're a member of the academy, you can get away with publishing uh, garbage. Ah, there it is. Over over. So yeah. speaking of garbage, the Amber Heard mm. Johnny Depp trial. Just to wrap this whole shit show up. <laughs> and I got I got three minutes. So okay. <laughs> speaking of speaking of before we shit the bed. Okay, yeah. let's get to this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this was a referendum on popular opinion and credibility credibility of a um of a, of a, of a of of a of a someone who's testifying and and Amber Heard it, this is so difficult because you know you think about me too you think about all allegations of of violence and intimate violence and all of that and and then you make this the case study it's really not good um because in many ways like i don't know who was right all i know is amber heard was not a very compelling witness because of all the stuff that you see and how it's portrayed and all that johnny depp is a better actor probably than amber heard and i don't know there's no truth telling here like there's no figuring out what's actually true and i i only doubt i only poked at this a little bit but so I, I have to be honest with you i guess um I actually have no idea about anything in the trial, but I guess my, let me tell, tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, my vague understanding is that uh, he has filed a defamation suit against her because she wrote an op-ed that was actually drafted by the ACLU, and in the op-ed, it alleged that he had uh, subjected her to domestic violence or domestic abuse, Yes, and he claimed he didn't. And there's somehow this whole court case was about whether or not by publishing that op-ed, 
she defamed his reputation. That's that right. right, and it cost him his Pirates okay. of the Caribbean franchise and so on. So he <clears throat> was the judge ruled in his favor and said, "Here's you know ten million dollars awarded uh, by Amber Heard." But essentially, there was a counterclaim by her okay. about some uh, libelous claim that he made that she actually won, and so she got two million back for that. Oh, again, so, these so- are. Eight, eight in his direction, but like I forget the exact number, but it's something along those lines. And and uh, the truth is, they're both terrible people. Uh, judging- but then let me ask you one question: Like, if somebody, I mean, how does one even know what actually happened? No, you I can't. Mean, you can't because you had to okay. say he shuts. They have a bunch of witnesses, and a lot of them are like fairly famous people, like Kate Moss and other people like that. It's kind of like. See. But uh, if the witnesses weren't present, were they present or not present? It, it, it not for the violence, but there was a big, long circumstantial case, and you know that that kind of thing. And honestly, I didn't watch much of it. All I saw were the memes. So I, I have no qualification to talk about this. Beyond. I know. I mean, all I saw was that one obviously very noteworthy line and yes, uh, a few about... memes. And um, and then I saw like how he actually was dressing. And I was like, this yeah. is how the guy goes to court. I mean, yeah. what is he? Dude, when you, he when you dress like D'Artagnan to show up to, to court, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what the hell is this? But um, yeah. I didn't follow. And she, I mean, there but were... I just, I, I guess, how does it, I mean, how does one even... I'm still stuck on like, how can you even know what actually, no, if you, two people are in a room and something happens and everyone has a different story, how do you even know what the yeah. truth is? Once again, it's about culture and not truth. It's not about uh, finding truth, it's about the culture. But that's a good way to wrap up um, because I know you gotta go. This was fun. I like doing it by Zoom. We'll see if anybody likes it. Uh, but either way, it's, I don't know. it's an audio podcast. Threw me off. It, it's a little weird, off. right? It's a little weird. Your, sh- your shiny head threw me off my game. No, <laughs> <laughs> At least you don't have to sit here pushing a button every time going back and forth like this. Giving people seizures, like, you know, God. <laughs> I'm always worried that you're going to catch me, and you know, I'll be like picking your nose. nose That's something. the thing, because when we usually do it, I'm like, I'm like this. I'm like, well, I don't know, Vinay. The thing is, um, uh, and then you know, I'm like Al Bundy too. Often my hand will just inflect, just reflexively go down my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love that show. I, yeah. Me too. Love and marriage. It mm-hmm. goes together like yeah. a horse and carriage. All right. So we did a thing. Guys, you know what to do. Uh, subscribe to the show. Leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, leave your comments. If you're not, you can always reach me, hello at zdogmd.com and yell at me on behalf of VP and me. Uh, VP, you had something You can to say? reach me at uh, my website, vinaykprasad.com, the contact me link. And uh, follow me on Substack. That's where that's yeah. where you can get the, the hot content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow VP on Substack. His Substack is hot because he's VPOX. What up, VPOX? <laughs> VPOX. I'm going to rename that Substack. Yeah. I like, yeah, the VPOX uh, letter. I like that. Um, I don't know. And we're out. Thanks, VP. Peace. <laughs>